0: Chapter Twelve Part Two Things Fall Apart, April Two Thousand Four of The U.S. Army in the Iraq War, Volume One by U.S. Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adam Cable. Chapter Twelve Part Two Things Fall Apart, April Two Thousand Four EXPANSION OF THE FIGHTING AND shia sunni COLLABORATION Despite the Fallujah ceasefire, the fighting in the first week of the uprising seemed to intensify and expand to new areas each day. On April 9th, insurgents ambushed a convoy carrying Brigadier General John Kelly, Assistant Commander of the 1st Marine Division, from Takadum Airfield to Iskandaria to coordinate with army units. After an intense battle, Kelly and his small detachment fought their way out of the assault with the assistance of a quick reaction force from 1st Battalion, 32nd Infantry, bolstered by close air support. On April 11th, during efforts to rescue a trapped resupply convoy in Babil province, south of Baghdad, soldiers from the 2nd Battalion, 505th Parachute Infantry Regiment leveled three houses with a 2,000-pound bomb, two blanched optically-tracted wire-guided missiles, and mortars, all without question or request for a storyboard beforehand from any higher headquarters. This incident stood in marked contrast to the situation just days before when leaders considered the country stable enough that using small arms fire often had prompted investigations of whether rules of engagement and proper escalation of force procedures had been followed. In eastern Anbar, the coalition had lost control of the area from Amaria to the MNDB boundary. When combat operations were halted in Fallujah, MNFW leaders reapportioned their overstretched forces to clear this eastern enclave of insurgents, an operation that lasted until early May and eventually allowed for the reopening of supply routes in the province. Elsewhere, western Anbar also witnessed mass uprisings as battles raged from Al-Qaim to Kuseba and other cities along the Syrian border and Euphrates River. In one engagement on April 14th in the border town of Karabila, Marine Corporal Jason Dunham led a squad responding to an ambush of his battalion commander's convoy. The action devolved to -to hand-to-hand combat in which one insurgent released a grenade while wrestling with Dunham, who immediately warned his marines and placed his helmet over the grenade. Dunham, killed by the blast, received the Medal of Honor for his sacrifice. As the fighting spread across the Iraqi provinces, coalition leaders were alarmed to discover Sunni and Shia militants operating in tandem against coalition units. While the battle raged in Fallujah, Shia volunteers from Baghdad and the south made their way to the city to support the Sunni resistance fighters, and vice versa. Fallujah insurgents reportedly delivered weapons such as the shoulder-fired SA-7B surface-to-air missile to solderists in Baghdad. Insurgent propaganda highlighted this brotherhood of resistance against the coalition, such as an April 6 statement by the Sunni insurgent group Jihad Brigades to the Al Jazeera News Channel that urged Sadr's followers to continue resisting coalition forces. Sunni and Shia insurgent groups sometimes wrote joint statements, including one in which Jaish al-Mahdi and Ansar al-Fallujah army warned Iraqi civilians to avoid roads used by coalition supply convoys. Quote, both forces have decided to make the road of al Usufia, al-Rashid district, Abu Dasher, Hora-Rigab, as a war zone against Jewish and Zionist forces. We will attack all the infidel vehicles that would use this road and these districts. We urge our patient people through this statement to stay away from this area. End quote. Another declaration called for shopkeepers in Baghdad to close their shops from April 15th to the 23rd because, quote, your resistance brothers al-Mujahideen from Ramadi, Kalidiyah, and Fallujah will move the resistance fire to Baghdad and will support our brothers Mujahideen from al-Mahdi army. End quote. In the words of one coalition planner, quote, we had at that point managed the nearly impossible task of uniting the Sunnis and Shiites. Against us. The joint Sunni-Shia declarations showed that, for at least a short time, the Iraqi insurgency had gelled into a national resistance. In April 2004, the Sunni resistance in Anbar was led primarily by former regime elements, alongside which Zarqawi's Tawid wal-Jihad played a relatively minor role. With Zarqawi not yet the dominant Sunni insurgent leader, Shia insurgents could rationalize working with Iraqi Sunni groups and Sunnis with Shias because they shared the common objective of expelling a foreign occupying force. Muqtada Sadr in particular temporarily embraced this collaboration with Sunni insurgents because it helped him stand out from other more traditional Shia leaders by emphasizing his nationalistic credentials. But this cross-sectarian allegiance did not last long. Zarqawi soon exploited the violence in Fallujah in the media far more effectively than the former regime elements could, and the Sunni-Shia collaboration soon gave way to sectarian civil war. The Coalition counterattack. Page 294 The First Armored Division's U-Turn With the situation spiraling out of control in southern Iraq, Sanchez and CJTF-7 put in motion a plan to regain the initiative. As U.S. leaders had authorized him to do, Sanchez halted the redeployment of Dempsey's 1st Armored Division, portions of which already had left Iraq to return to their home base. To address the burgeoning crisis, the division was also extended 90 days, resulting in a 15-month-long deployment. The 1st Armored Division's consequent U-turn was an extraordinary logistical feat. Almost 10% of the soldiers in the division's three brigades either already had returned to Germany or awaited flights home from Kuwait. Over half of the division's combat vehicles had left Iraq, and the division's helicopter fleet sat disassembled and shrink-wrapped for Ocean Transit home. Most division units had turned over their ammunition to the 1st Cavalry Division replacements. For the return to Iraq, they drew new stocks from a rapidly depleting theater reserve in Kuwait and at logistics support area Anaconda in Balad. With their former headquarters and barracks occupied by new units, the division reverted to invasion mode, sleeping in vehicles and temporary shelters. Some of the division's units in Kuwait conducted forced road marches back to Baghdad, exceeding the distance covered by much of the original invasion force. However. Other 1st Armored Division units that had not begun their redeployment were available nearly immediately. In Baghdad, the Division's 2nd Brigade, renamed Task Force Striker, pushed to Najaf on April 4th, with only hours to prepare. Ordered to move next to Kut, where the CPA compound had fallen and the situation was considered to be more precarious, Stryker quickly changed tack and began hasty planning and logistical refitting. On April 8th, preparations were complete, and Task Force Stryker with 112 combat vehicles made the 277 kilometer road march from Najaf to Kut in six hours, fighting three times en route. As they approached Kut, they paired with AH 64 Apache helicopters and AC 130 gunships in an attack that destroyed the Sadr Bureau headquarters and recaptured the CPA compound and Iraqi municipal buildings. As Dempsey rallied his units, CJTF-7 also created a composite unit around Colonel Dana Petard's 3rd Brigade 1st Infantry Division, comprised of elements of three different divisions including a light infantry battalion that just had been assigned to the short-handed Task Force Olympia in Nineveh province. Disengaging from the fighting in Diyala province, Pittard and his polyglot Task Force Duke embarked on a 40-hour, 400-kilometer road march to Najaf, fighting through blown bridges and Sunni and Shia insurgent attacks en route. When the task force arrived on April 13th, CJTF-7 directed it to establish a cordon around the city rather than begin clearing operations, out of concern the Imam Ali Mosque, considered by some the holiest shrine in the Shia world, could be damaged in the fighting. Task Force Duke kept watch for several days, buying time for the 1st Armored Division to reassemble and complete its ongoing relief in place with the 1st Cavalry Division. By April 20th, Dempsey's 1st Armored Division had reassembled its brigades and taken responsibility for the area of soderist uprisings, allowing Task Force Duke and other units to return to their original areas of responsibility in MNDNC and MNFW. Serving as the CJTF-7 Reserve, Colonel Peter Mansour's 1st Brigade, 1st Armored Division was directed to Najaf to prepare for an assault against Mokhtada Sadr and his militia followers there, as well as in the other major shrine city of Karbala. With an additional division's worth of U.S. combat power in the southern provinces, the balance began to shift back to the coalition. Fighting and Negotiations with Sadr as Dempsey's brigades advanced on Sadr's southern strongholds, the coalition also reached out politically to try to negotiate an end to the fighting. By mid April, parallel efforts were underway to de escalate the situation and to persuade Sadr to withdraw his fighters from Najaf. In Baghdad, Ambassador Robert Blackwell led an officially sanctioned effort to negotiate with Sadr, but Iranian diplomats, Dawa Party leaders, and southern tribal sheikhs all negotiated on their own with the Sadrists as well. Muddling the picture. Even Sadr's mother became involved, holding meetings to plead for mercy tearfully from the coalition and beg her son to end the confrontation. These negotiations made little progress. Fighting continued through May, and the Sadrists took heavy casualties, including many mid level leaders. Mansur's 1st Brigade retook most of Karbala by the second week of May, except for the old city, where Jaish al Mahdi dug in and prepared for a Fallujah like urban battle. With the noose tightening around Sadr and a coalition defeat or disruption of the planned transfer of sovereignty averted, Bremer ordered Sanchez to cease offensive operations and avoid a final confrontation with Moktada Sadr himself. For his part, Sanchez believed the 1st Armored Division had sufficient intelligence to finish off Sadr and his militia and should be allowed to do so but he halted the division's impending attack on Karbala's old city to alleviate coalition fears that the shrine of Imam Hussein, one of Shi'ism's two holiest sites, might be damaged. Unaware of these internal coalition directives and seeing his fortunes shift from near victory to near defeat, Sadr decided to sue for peace. On June 16th, he agreed to a ceasefire that finally brought the uprising to an end. Many coalition leaders believed they had dealt Sadr a lasting defeat but the decision to stop short of destroying his militia and killing or capturing Sadr himself had negative consequences Sadr remained free in defiance of the Iraqi arrest warrant for his alleged involvement in the Khoy murder the year before his militia which had teetered on the edge of disintegration by the end of the fighting began to regroup and recruit replacements for the heavy casualties his organization sustained more broadly Many Iraqis who were used to Saddam's brutality saw the American forces as weak-willed. Befuddlement reached the highest levels of secular and religious Iraqi leaders, including Grand Ayatollah Ali Husseini Sistani. In letters carried to U.S. authorities by governing council member Moafik Rubai during the uprising, Sistani expressed his confusion and frustration over coalition policies, writing, quote, We do not know the reason for or the utility of negotiating with Mokhtada Sadr. First, he does not want to dissolve the Mahdi army. Second, he does not want to come before the judicial authorities. Third, these negotiations will make a hero out of him, inflate his importance and prolong the tragedy that the holy cities are living. We do not know exactly what you want. Over and over we have seen the American forces advance and the Mahdi army withdraw and even flee. But you do not complete your work. You withdraw before you complete or finish purging the cities of them. It appears that there is a clear intention to keep the situation in abeyance as it is, despite the continued suffering of the people, the paralysis of business and the paralysis of the schools and universities. Keeping the situation as it is will turn the people against you. We are for ending this issue and bringing peace in the holy cities. These negotiations are grave and fruitless and will increase the suffering of the people. In a second letter, Sistani continued to signal his frustration, adding, We want to state clearly that we are not against a peaceful settlement or negotiations that end the shedding of innocent people's blood. We are unable to tell you what to do because we cannot understand what you are doing or what you want to achieve. We do not understand how Muqtada is able to go from Najaf to Kufa under these conditions of combat and under your eyes and ears. We are sure that Muqtada does not hold his word, that he will not dissolve the Mahdi army, and that he will not turn himself over to justice. We do not understand why Muqtada was left to grow and become what he is now. We said repeatedly when he was kidnapping people into the Sharia court and torturing them that he must be stopped at that limit. This was eight months ago. Look at what he has now become. End quote. Sistani's position reflected deep fissures within the Shia community that the coalition's strategy had not considered. CJTF-7 had halted combat against Moqtada Sadr's militia out of concern that the fighting might turn the broader Shia community against the coalition, the same fear that Abizade raised with U.S. leaders before April. Actually, CJTF-7's decision not to finish off the Sadrists angered and confused mainstream Shia leaders who viewed Sadr as a menace. The April crisis had been a missed opportunity for the coalition to leverage these intra-Shia differences and solve the Sadr problem for the long term. The Fallujah Brigade The fight against the Sadrists was not the only incomplete action against the Iraqi insurgents of spring 2004. Around Fallujah, Conway and Mattis had been able to consolidate additional marine battalions as insurgent pressure in eastern Anbar had been relieved somewhat by the arrival of 1st Armored Division units in Babil and Karbala provinces. That change, coupled with a nearly universal insurgent rejection of coalition demands issued after the April 9th ceasefire, led Sanchez and Abizade to petition Rumsfeld and the president to resume offensive operations in Fallujah. In a Principals Committee meeting on April 21st, Abizade and Rumsfeld pushed to restart operations, with Abizade noting that if the United States failed to stamp out the insurgency in Fallujah, quote, various opposition forces would see our inaction and become increasingly aggressive in Mosul, Bakuba, and other cities, end quote. By contrast, Bremer advocated for, quote, continuing the political approach, whittling down the element of resistance and restricting them geographically within the city, end quote, as well as bringing back Iraqi security forces. Bremer added that taking coalition military action, quote, could potentially scuttle the whole political process, end quote, a very real possibility given the Iraqi governing councils and Brahimi's ultimatums earlier in the month. Faced with these possibilities, President George W. Bush decided not to resume hostilities. With the decision to terminate offensive operations, at least for the near term, cemented, the coalition opted to hand the city's security over to a locally raised force, a course of action that resulted from ceasefire negotiations between the Iraqi Governing Council and local Fallujah leaders. On April 25, MNFW withdrew from Fallujah, leaving behind the hastily organized Fallujah Brigade under Major General Jassim Mohammed Saleh, formerly an officer in Saddam's Republican Guard. In return for U.S. weapons and equipment and a coalition withdrawal, the Fallujah Brigade leaders pledged to stop insurgent attacks and turn over those who had ambushed the Blackwater convoy. It was a promise that did not last long. The day after the brigade's activation, fighting flared again, with 300 insurgents attempting to overrun a Marine platoon assigned to a forward observation point. During the battle, two special operators, Master Sergeant Donald Hollenbaugh and Staff Sergeant Daniel Briggs, kept the attackers at bay for nearly 30 minutes, preventing the platoon's destruction and allowing it to withdraw its wounded. For their actions, both received the Distinguished Service Cross. Such brazen violations of the ceasefire, as well as a Shia political backlash against the brigade's Sunni leaders, led coalition leaders to remove its commander on May 2nd. Saleh's removal technically left the brigade in the hands of his deputy, Colonel Mohammed Latif, a retired officer from Baghdad who was unfamiliar with many of the unit's men. But a week later, marines found Saleh still directing forces in the city. Under Salé's and Latif's command, the Fallujah Brigade failed to follow through on any of its commitments and stood by while insurgents regained control of the city. With the coalition unable to vet the brigade's members, many insurgents who had fought against the Marines in April joined its ranks. The degree to which the brigade was co-opted by the insurgency from its inception should have been clear when Latif and Saleh met with insurgent leader Sheikh Abdullah Janabi during the brigade's formation, and Janabi forced the two commanders to accept 300 to 350 of his insurgent fighters into the new unit. Violence and intimidation against government officials returned, and Fallujah gradually reverted to its former state as an insurgent sanctuary. THE FALLOUT FROM THE APRIL UPRISING page 298 APRIL AND THE INSURGENCY April was a good month for the insurgency, which claimed to have won two victories over the coalition. Insurgent propaganda trumpeted the negotiated ceasefire in Fallujah and with Jay al-Mahdi as proof that the mighty American-led war machine could be fought to a standstill, dispelling perceptions of an omnipotent coalition that had destroyed Saddam's military and occupied Iraq in a few weeks. April also changed the face of the insurgency. Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who had been only one of the resistance leaders fighting the coalition in Fallujah, nevertheless capitalized on his involvement more than others because his group had more mature and better-funded propaganda cells. As the fight for Fallujah unfolded, Zarqawi quickly became the icon of the insurgency, and began to draw additional funding and recruits that enabled him to eclipse many of the other, more nationalist Sunni insurgent groups. More broadly, Sunni Arabs who remained on the fence between the coalition and the insurgency and who were fearful of losing their positions of power to Shia Iraqis also drew lessons from April they took the April assault on Fallujah as a bellwether for what the coalition had in mind for them in the new Iraq. Ronald Schlicker, a U.S. diplomat who headed the CPA's Office of Provincial Outreach, prophetically described the Sunnis' sense of alienation in an April 11th memorandum to Bremer. Fallujah is a microcosm of Sunni Arab Iraq, and of that community's sense of alienation from the new Iraq. The impression that Sunnis have been shorn of all political power, of their livelihoods, and of their dignity is strong. They are convinced that the new Iraq is an American-brokered deal between the Shia and the Kurds specifically aimed at clipping Sunni Arab wings. If the powerful sense of victimization continues or deepens, the last week in Fallujah is destined to be the prelude to many more tragedies. End quote. April had a significant impact on the Shia insurgency as well, propelling Muqtada Sadr to the forefront of the Iraqi resistance to the coalition. In May, a CJTF-7 poll of southern provinces and Baghdad showed that 81% of those surveyed had a better opinion of Sadr after the uprisings than before, and that Sadr enjoyed greater popular support than any Shia leader except Sistani. Sadr and other insurgent leaders also had benefited from growing popular dissatisfaction with the quality of everyday life. The explosion of violence in April was not just a response to proximate events like the Yakubi arrest and the closing of Alhausa, but also a reaction to the building pressure from a year under occupation. In a letter to Sanchez after the violence subsided, Muwafaq Rubai, Iraq's national security advisor, described several undercurrent factors that had contributed to the outbreak, including the large number of dispossessed and unhappy Shia living in the slums of Sadr City, the ineffectiveness and marginalization of the Iraqi Governing Council, ministerial inefficiency, and the continued presence of coalition troops. These factors and the lack of security, Rubaii judged, had created the perception among Iraqis that there had been little improvement in their daily lives. Rubai's undercurrent factors represented the pent-up frustration of Iraqis who had expected a better life after Saddam, but saw the coalition as failing to deliver on its promises. Basic services, such as electricity, water, and sewage, stood in worse condition in 2004 than before the invasion. Post-war electrical production had fallen to only 2,500 megawatts from a pre-war level of 4,300 megawatts, even though demand for electricity and other services had grown as consumerism replaced the bathist-subsidized and controlled economy. A number of coalition leaders could sense the dangerous mismatch between expectations and reality. Walking through the markets of Basra, for example, British MNDSE Commander Major General Andrew Stewart saw large numbers of Basrawis buying washing machines that required water, electricity, and sewage treatment that his command could not provide for the city. Quote, The biggest concern I had, Stewart recalled, was the inability to meet the expectations of the Iraqi people. End quote. Having grown accustomed under the bath to free or cheap state provided fuel, electricity, and water, the Iraqi public had expected the same from the coalition, but this was an expectation the coalition could not possibly meet. Sadr and others had harnessed the resulting Iraqi resentment and directed it violently toward the coalition. The April Crisis and the Coalition. The April crisis signified confounded expectations within the coalition as well. European contingents that had come to Iraq expecting to assist the United States in stability operations and reconstruction similar to that in the Balkans suddenly found themselves in intense combat. The seeming overnight change in conditions shocked the British and coalition allies in the south, many of whom viewed the April uprising as an unnecessary confrontation provoked by the United States. In the span of a week. British forces in Amara went from patrolling in unarmored Land Rover vehicles and receiving friendly Iraqi greetings to being attacked by bricks, gunfire, and IEDs. Quote, the attack that was done by American forces in the North really kicked off the war with the Sadrists, and it just, whoosh, went up like a firestorm around about us. End quote, one British officer remembered. We were caught completely unawares. End quote. Many coalition allies, especially the British, were under intense media and public pressure at home where casualties among small troop contingents were felt acutely. Faced with a violent, unexpected insurgency, the British, Spanish, Italian, and Ukrainian troops in southern Iraq responded mainly by taking steps to minimize casualties, withdrawing to their bases and seeking to lessen tensions through negotiations. Several Allied military commanders, including Stuart, believed their units did not have the resources to take on the militias at the time and wished to avoid civilian casualties in operations in urban areas. Not all Allied units limited themselves to defensive measures, however, and some coalition troops acquitted themselves with extraordinary distinction. After a Salvadoran unit in Najaf expended all of its ammunition, it fought in hand-to-hand combat against attacking Jaish al-Mahdi fighters, earning six of its members a rare nomination for the Bronze Star Medal. The 1st Battalion of the Princess of Wales Royal Regiment in Amara found itself in a protracted fight against Jaish al-Mahdi that Stewart described as the, quote, most concerted assault on a British battalion since Korea, End quote. In one engagement in mid-May, the regiment counterattacked into Amara with fixed bayonets, fighting through trenches to capture Jay al leaders and seize the militia's weapons caches. The fighting in Amara brought the regiment a Victoria Cross, three distinguished service orders, and seven military crosses over the span of the next several months. Despite examples of valor— U.S. leaders remained frustrated by their allies' reticence to confront the Mahdi army directly and believed the militia's freedom of movement through most of the MNDCS and MNDSE provinces prolonged the crisis and enabled the Sadrists to escape the American encirclement around Najaf, Karbala, and Kut. Some U.S. leaders also believed their allies' perceived weakness emboldened the Sadrists and invited intense attack on several coalition bases. These dynamics ruptured relations between U.S. leaders and the Spanish contingent in MNDCS, which already had floundered after Spain's prime minister-elect announced his forces would withdraw due to the Atocha train station bombing. The day of Mustafa al-Yacoubi's capture, the Spanish deputy commander publicly called the arrest a mistake and recommended Yacoubi's immediate release. On April 5th, Spanish Commander Brigadier General Fulgencio Cole began unilateral negotiations with Muqtada Sadr and appointed local Badr Corps leader Haji Hassan Abtal as the provisional governor of Najaf. These moves angered Bremer, who quickly instructed U.S. diplomat Michael Fowler that, quote, Under no circumstances is Cole to negotiate through any channels with Sadr. His actions have placed him beyond the pale. Sadr is a criminal and usurper and will be dealt with as such. End quote. In a heated meeting in Najaf later that day with CPA official Philip Kosnett, Cole and MNDCS commander Major General Michislav Binek pressed for a political solution to the problem and opined that military action against Sadr should wait until after the Arba'in pilgrimage. The two commanders reported that the national leadership of their respective countries had not authorized offensive action, and Cole jokingly offered that the coalition should quote, make love, not war, end quote, to resolve the disagreement with the Sauterists. The arrival of the U.S. combat units of Task Force Duke on April 13th rendered this disagreement moot, effectively masking the larger differences between the United States and its MNDCS allies for the time being. Tensions also boiled over between U.S. leaders in Baghdad and the British command in MNDSE. In Basra, where Jaish al-Mahdi took over the governor's palace, Stuart initially ignored Bremer's orders to retake the building, believing that the objective could be accomplished peacefully through negotiations. The CPA and CJTF-7 were frustrated by Stuart's decision to seek local truces with the Mahdi army when possible, rather than conduct offensive operations against them. Similar policies had served the British well in Northern Ireland, an experience that was deeply ingrained in their army. Regardless, an infuriated Bremer had requested through the British Embassy in Washington, D.C., that Whitehall relieve Stewart of his command. Writing on April 11th to Metz, Stewart had attempted to defuse some of the American frustrations. Quote, I fully recognize that our refusal to close down the OMS, or Organization of the Martyr Sodder offices, and take overt aggressive action against Sadr militia will appear from Baghdad to be both ineffective and apparently out of line with your intent, end quote, Stewart conceded. But engaging local political and tribal leaders seemed the best way to maintain the consent of the people that he considered the operational center of gravity, the British commander explained. A political approach would also support the long-term objective of returning political and security control to the Iraqis, as it, quote, produced an Iraqi solution to an Iraqi problem. Moreover, British commanders found the CPA's inclination to lash out broadly a misguided one. Quote, going on to a general offensive without careful targeting and intelligence would be seen as us taking on the population, Stewart argued. We would quickly destroy all that we have achieved over the last year. End quote. British leaders in London sided with Stuart, opting to leave him in place despite Bremmer's loss of confidence in him. Quote, I was charged with not killing enough people, Stuart later claimed. The CPA asked for my removal because Mr. Bremmer's policy was one of strong coercion. We must defeat Moctada Sadr militarily. End quote but the difference in british and american approaches represented more than divergent viewpoints on tactics it reflected nearly diametric perspectives on the source of the problem as well as its prescription a letter from mndse headquarters to cjtf7 on may 3 further explained the british opposition to taking a more forceful approach quote the violence in amara and Myson province has been linked to adherence of muqtada al sadr but this assessment oversimplifies the situation end quote, the MNDSE chief of staff wrote, arguing that most of the violence was actually caused by opportunistic, quote, violent criminals who will rally to any popular cause, end quote. Sadr was merely the latest cause that the recalcitrants in Maison had adopted, MNDSE leaders judged, and an overreaction to Jaish al-Mahdi such as CJTF-7's orders to MNDSE to, quote, destroy the Mahdi army in zone, end quote, would only serve to empower the Shia cleric. The disputes during the April crisis clarified British national policy for United Kingdom commanders in Iraq and also signaled a divergence in strategy between the United Kingdom and the United States that widened in the years to come. In the near term, the differences had significant operational consequences. The new security situation negated the American hope that the British might expand their area of responsibility and send additional troops to replace the departing Spanish Brigade in MNDCS. U.S. forces needed to fill the void, stretching them even further. Finally, the April uprisings highlighted U.S. difficulties in managing a coalition of allies driven by their own domestic criticism of the war, lower casualty tolerances, and a differing philosophy regarding conflict management. Balancing operational requirements and unity of effort against the need to keep allies in the coalition vexed senior U.S. leaders throughout the war. April 2004 stood as the worst month of the war to that point for American losses, with a total of 137 servicemen killed, just one fewer than the number lost during the entire six weeks' invasion period of 2003 the outbreak of violence led to several immediate changes within the coalition, as senior leaders took steps to avoid a repetition of what some would refer to as Black April. Metz, the 3rd Corps commander, believed the coalition had lost the information fight during the month and dedicated significant energy to improving the coalition's information operations capability. He and other leaders who had seen firsthand the results of an offensive launched without any political groundwork were determined not to repeat that error. First MEF Commander Conway believed the same, noting, quote, Al Jazeera kicked our butts. End quote. In addition, having barely avoided a second theater wide logistics meltdown as a result of cut lines of communication and attacks on convoys, the coalition significantly increased its fuel and ammunition stocks and tasked an entire brigade combat team to accompany convoys and secure major supply routes. The difficulties experienced in April deflated coalition hopes that it would be able to maintain order in Iraq with the 12 brigades that originally had been planned for the 2004 rotation. Faced with the prospect of an unmanageable situation after the 1st Armored Division's extension ended, CJTF-7 requested immediate reinforcements, and the Army and Marine Corps reacted quickly. The 2nd Brigade, 10th Mountain Division, which had only redeployed from Afghanistan in December 2003, responded first deploying to Iraq a mere 36 days after it was alerted. Indicative of the turbulence the army was experiencing, the brigade had not expected to deploy for another year and had many of its subordinate units still committed to other overseas contingency operations. Augmented by a hodgepodge of units from across the army, including troops from the opposing force battalion at the Joint Readiness Training Center, the brigade nevertheless joined MNDB by July. In Korea, the 2nd Brigade's 2nd Infantry Division was also notified that it would be making an unexpected short-notice deployment to Iraq, arriving by August to plug gaps in MNFW. Last, the 11th Marine Expeditionary Unit, CENTCOM's Theater Reserve, was called forward to replace the 2nd Armored Cavalry Regiment, which itself was helping to fill the gap in MNDCS caused by the departure of the Spanish Brigade. The April crisis also drove home the need for the coalition to maintain an operational reserve force. Had Sadr's uprising taken place a month later, the 1st Armored Division would not have been available as a reserve to fill CJTF-7's gaps in the South. Once the crisis passed, CJTF-7 assigned a striker battalion from 3rd Brigade 2nd Infantry Division as a core reserve on a rotating basis a decision that, while necessary, rendered Task Force Olympia even further understrength for the securing of Mosul and Nineveh province. The rotational nature of the reserve battalion also interrupted Task Force Olympia's geographic continuity because the striker battalions repeatedly had to take over one another's battle space as each of them became the reserve in turn. CJTF-7 leaders decided to assign their reserve from Nineveh based on their perception that the province, which had remained quiet in April, had progressed further than other sectors, an assumption that was overturned spectacularly in the months to come. At CJTF-7, April ended Sanchez's attempts to formulate a coherent campaign plan for the entire Iraq theater. CJTF-7's understaffed, inexperienced planners already had struggled with the effort, and continually changing strategic guidance had delayed their final products. The distraction of the April crisis ended any hope of completing the process. It also upended U.S. plans to take action against Iranian meddling in Iraq, including a proposal to expel Iran's charge d'affaires, a known Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps agent. By any measure, April 2004 was a major pivot point in the Iraq War, changing the conduct and character of the conflict. It strengthened the insurgency by providing both a justification for fighting and encouragement that the coalition could be beaten. It shocked and scarred many coalition leaders so much that they would regard similar crises very differently afterward. In retrospect, The coalition's deliberate decision to pressure the Sadrists in the midst of a significant operational crisis in Fallujah was reckless. It ignited a second front across most of southern Iraq that nearly put the coalition into an irretrievable operational position. Had Dempsey's first armored division not been available to counterattack, the coalition might not have recovered either operationally or politically from the likely consequent losses. Fear of opening a second front against the Shia was a legacy of April that would affect the coalition for the remainder of the war. End of Chapter 12, Part 2 Things Fall Apart, April 2004. Read by Adam Cable, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 2021.